Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host for today, Paul Mueller, and we're back today with another Best Ever Midweek News Brief, where we'll run through some of the top CRE headlines for you, then invite an expert in to discuss our top story before sending you off to your day, hopefully a little bit more informed. Today, we'll discuss what the Fed might do in 2024. Emphasis on might, of course. We'll crown the hottest markets for multifamily competition in 2023, and we'll dive a little deeper into some new legislation looking to boot institutional investors from the single-family space. So let's do it. First off, the Fed, because who hasn't had enough of talking about interest rates in 2023, right? Well, today we're going to discuss interest rates in 2024, specifically a report from ING Economics that predicts that federal interest rates will likely be cut six times in 2024. Not my prediction and not best ever's. Remember, not investment advice, just highlighting what we're seeing on the streets. The report says that ING expects rate cuts from the second quarter onwards, saying, quote, we are currently forecasting 150 basis points of rate cuts in 2024, with a further 100 basis points early in 2025. At a 25 basis point swing, that's up to six cuts in 2024. That's a bold prediction based on what we've seen in 2023. So why does ING have the confidence to make such a prediction? Well, the report cites three key factors. Number one, it points to a labor market that it intentionally describes as, quote, cooling, not collapsing, end quote. The data shows a moderate rise in initial jobless claims, but a sharp increase in continuing claims, indicating that employers are hesitant to fire, but slower to hire. That's evidence of a cooling market, but not one in danger of a capital C collapse. With the Fed reporting flat to modest employment gains, these trends are consistent with the, quote, soft landing we've been hearing so much about in 2023. Number two, the report highlights a gradual easing of inflationary pressures, with the inflation rate slowing in October and again in November. Signs that, when coupled with other economic factors, indicate we could be on track to eventually reach the 2% inflation rate the Fed is so publicly targeted. And number three, while consumer spending is generally holding up, ING data shows that spending is increasingly propped up by rising consumer debt and savings drawdowns. And number three, 
while consumer spending is generally holding up, ING data shows that spending is increasingly propped up by rising consumer debt and savings drawdowns as real incomes stagnate. So even though spending is still strong, the outlook points to financial pressure hitting millions of households, and soon, which should curb spending and slow overall economic activity. Look, the predictions are all over the place. That's just the nature of predictions. Some experts suggest aggressive rate cuts. Others have more moderate expectations for 2024, and others are throwing up their hands and bowing out of the prediction game altogether, because honestly, who knows, right? I guess time will tell, but generally speaking, if they're forecasting six cuts in 2024, I'm team ING. To dig further into ING's report, click the link in the show notes. And while many are making their predictions for 2024, a ton of 2023 data is beginning to emerge, including Rent Cafe's 2023 year-end report, where the company broke down the U.S. rental markets based on competition. And while Miami was the nation's hottest rental market, the Midwest was the clear winner, with three cities in the top five and 10 of the top 30 most competitive rental markets in the U.S. for 2023. Before we dive into the list, let's look at the methodology. Rent Cafe's analysis is based on five factors. Number one, the number of days apartments stayed vacant. Number two, the percentage of rentals that were occupied. Number three, the number of prospective renters competing for an apartment. Number four, the percentage of renters who renew their leases. And number five, the share of apartments completed this year. When all these factors were tallied, the Midwest emerged as the most competitive region by far, largely due to its comparatively low cost of living, large living spaces that are conducive to remote work, which is so popular these days, and access to outdoor activities, which has been something that's been in high demand from renters since the pandemic. In almost all Midwestern locations, more than two-thirds of renters renewed their leases in 2023, intensifying the competition. Milwaukee, Wisconsin clocked in as the third most competitive rental market in the U.S. this year, tops in the Midwest. More than half the population in Milwaukee is made up of renters, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, and in 2023, less than 5% of its apartments were available at any given time with nearly 70% of current renters choosing to renew rather than relocate. So it was a tough year to find an apartment in Milwaukee, to say the least. Following Milwaukee, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the Chicago suburbs, which Rent Cafe grouped collectively, rounded out the top five behind Miami and the second most competitive market, North Jersey. Another Midwest city, Omaha, Nebraska, clocked in at number six on the list, while Cincinnati, Ohio, the birthplace of best ever, hey, ranked 13th overall. To see the full breakdown and whether or not the markets you invest in made the list, click the link in the show notes. And since we're already talking competition, our top story today will fit right in, as Congress appears to be stepping in to potentially eliminate a key competitor from the single-family housing market. That brings us to our main story for today. Democrats have proposed two separate bills targeting institutional investors that would reduce their ability to own single-family homes. The first, called the End Hedge Fund Control of American Homes Act, would impose tax penalties that would force big investors to sell off the single-family homes they own over a 10-year period, effectively banning them from owning them entirely. The title may refer to hedge funds, but the definition within the bill says that it would target any applicable entity that, quote, manages funds pooled from investors, unquote, which encompasses a large swath of commercial funds and businesses. A second bill, titled the American Neighborhoods Protection Act, was also introduced, And this bill would require corporate owners of more than 75 single-family homes to pay an annual fee of $10,000 per home into a housing trust fund to be used as down payment assistance for families. So basically, Congress appears to be targeting large institutional real estate investors in an effort to improve affordability. 
We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital dot the bam companies.com so here to discuss this with me today is logan freeman logan is a return guest he's been on the show a few times we'll put the links to those in the show notes but he's the co-founder and principal at ftw investments where their strategy involves acquiring operating and the eventual disposition of large-scale commercial real estate assets uh, their portfolio currently consists of a general partner on 1500 multifamily units across four states and also 600,000 square feet in office industrial and retail which is their biggest focus right now how you doing today logan Energized, thriving, and focused. Excited to talk about a very trendy and interesting topic today. Yeah, definitely. So, right, there's two pieces of legislation that are proposed that would target institutional investors, force them to sell off their single family portfolios, and really make it prohibitive for them to continue to invest in those in the future. So, as somebody who raises capital, even though you're not in the single family space, what's your gut reaction to this? Well, I, I do have a decent amount of exposure to the single family home space, as, as I spoke to on my previous episodes as a head of acquisitions for a $50 million fund focused on single family homes. So I have a unique perspective, I think, on this. And we were able to uh, acquire and reposition about 265 homes in and around Kansas City. So it was a decent sized portfolio. But you know, one of the proposed bills has a really interesting name, the End Hedge Fund Control of American Homes Act of 2023, right? What a name. But that does require, it would require hedge funds to sell off all their single family home assets over a 10 year period. And, you know, during that phase out, penalties up to $10,000 per home would be assessed on owners with more than 75 single family homes in their portfolio to fund down payment assistance programs. Right. And so why are they, why is this in Congress? Like, why is this even a, a question um, that they're trying to tackle? Well, I mean, everybody knows that home ownership has become increasingly unattainable for most Americans due to soaring home prices and interest rates. And so this bill is aiming to nip the issue in the bud by reducing competition from hedge funds and increasing supply for in individual uh, buyers. But so that that's interesting, right? It's one perspective is, is trying to eliminate a player in the market. And most institutional investment has focused on modestly priced homes. And those properties are frequently converted into rentals, which some may say that exacerbates the affordability crisis. Now, this is, this is something to, to keep in mind. Institutional investors owned 3% of all single-family rentals nationwide by June of 2022, with 20%. This is just uh, one market that I looked at, but with 20% in Charlotte, North Carolina. So advocates are arguing that the real problem lies in the lack of new housing units. And estimates that we've all seen that the country needs anywhere between two to six and a half million new housing units. You know, according to Redfin, 
you know, hedge fund buying has slowed down drastically by nearly 30% year over year in the third quarter of 2023, yet they still managed to buy 49,000 homes in the quarter. But that's the lowest Q3 figure since 2016. Yeah, so that's interesting. If it's slowing down at that rate currently, why propose a bill now that targets hedge funds? Well, it doesn't target hedge funds specifically. I think you could speak a little bit about what who this actually targets. It says hedge funds, but it's much deeper than that. But why specifically target hedge funds and institutional investors right now? You know, I think that um, there's a lot of uh, potential nimbyism that that goes on in real estate investing. And this could be very, which is not in my backyard, right? And so um, everyone has tried to attack this affordability crisis, um, you know, one way or the other. There's a lot of advocates on the supply side uh, trying to create new supply and how difficult that can be. But if there is an ability to eliminate a player, then potentially that would increase supply for specific home buyers. However, I think there's a trend here too that people need to, that that's not being spoke about, which is do individuals even want to own homes anymore, right? I mean, there is a big and, and a large trend of people wanting to rent homes and not and or apartment units, which we also know that we have a shortage of those in the United States. And so it, it's really, if you eliminate one player, that is potentially, you know, or not one player, but one as- asset class of players, right? Let's just call them that institutional, you know, buyers. And, um, but let's think about what they do. They go in, they purchase, renovate homes, and they're professionally managed. And so one might say that, you know, eliminating them could also, you know, on playing devil's advocate, could also, you know, decrease the ability for people who want to rent. And so I think that, Looking at it from one perspective, it is a big shot because, you know, there's big corporations, big institutions that own a decent amount of these single family homes. But let's remember that's only 3% of the whole the whole market on single family rentals, which is, you know, I mean, that, that could be growing. But at the end of the day, 3% is not 30%. It's not 90%. Um, so what impact is that actually going to have? Uh, I think that, ge- you know, geographically speaking, it's going to have certain impacts on other, you know, specific markets that these, you know, institutions have focused on. And so then it's like the the actual, you know, avatar that you're trying to create more housing for is very niche focused on where these folks own and very specific markets. And so I think that that's something to keep in mind as well. But I think that Congress is looking at this as saying, like, let's take a big shot at, at, at the institutional investors because they do own 3% of the market and see what uh, see what pushback and or you know you know feedback we might be able to get so um, I think it's an easy way for them to try to um, you know maybe resonate with some of their voters in their jurisdictions but I think that it needs to be thought through from both perspectives to be really um, you know to have a solid a solid plan and I'm not sure removing a market player in this is the right move so let's say I, I think it's pretty unlikely that these bills are going to pass they're both heavily, if not completely Democrat supported, and obviously with the Republicans having the majority in the House right now. So it's pretty unlikely that they're going to pass. But in the, let's let's live in a world for a moment in which they do. Mm-hmm. What impact would this have on housing prices, rental rates, and overall affordability in your opinion? Yeah, I think the ban could have a significant impact on the housing market, both positive and negative. And, you know, if it does work, right, I mean, if they're what they're trying to accomplish doesn't necessarily work by limiting, you know, Wall Street investment, um, then, then there might be more increased housing affordability. So prices could potentially decline, making homeownership more attainable for first-time buyers. You know, there could be 
reduce competition for renters. With fewer investors competing in the rental market, rents could stabilize or even decrease, providing relief for renters. One metric that I always like to look at is, is it more you know, affordable to own a house or rent a house? Well, you know, we know that affordability on the purchasing has gone way up, but you know, the last two to three years, uh, rental rates have also gone up um, quite substantially. So that's something to think about. Now, there also could be reduced access to financing. So tightening regulations could make it more difficult for some buyers and investors to secure financing, impacting the market liquidity. Um, and then I also think this is a big one to think through, but the disruption in the housing supply chain. So if Wall Street, because Wall Street plays a, a big role in building and renovating homes. So that ban could lead to a slowdown in new housing construction and could even impact certain uh, markets and trends that we have been seeing, like build for rent type of communities that have been popping up across the country. Right. And when you're, for, when you're facing a housing shortage of two million or six and a half million, depending on where you're reading and where you're getting your information, um, that's obviously a big deal. Absolutely. And I, I also think that investors have a lot of perspectives on this. You know, Wall Street investors are obviously and naturally concerned about a potential ban and, and its impact on their businesses. But, you know, you know, why? Well, I mean, you have loss of investment opportunities. That ban is going to prevent those investors from participating in a lucrative market which could potentially impact their bottom lines. Um, I think there is a lot of uncertainty and regulatory burden here as well. So the proposed legislation creates uncertainty for investors and could impose additional compliance costs. You know, we're talking about large corporations that own hundreds of thousands of units um, of, of houses, right? And so that's a lot of compliance that could be could be focused. And then this could have a, let's say, let's say it does pass. It could have a massive shift on investment focus. Right. Investors may be forced to explore other asset classes, potentially driving up prices in those sectors. You know, I mean, if you study economics, one decision, the ripple effect of that is going to have other impacts in other areas of the market. Right. And so um, I, I think it also opens up the potential potentiality for a lot of litigation. Paul, I think that investors could challenge the ban in court, potentially delaying its implementation or even overturning it. I also think that legislation, you know, these investors are very smart. Um, they know the tax code. They know that they know a lot of different legislation um, in certain markets and they, they likely will find loopholes as well. Yeah, you mentioned something in there that I think is really smart. Something that I was going to touch on is the impact that this is going to have in other asset classes. I mean, our audience is commercial real estate investors, uh, largely multifamily syndicators, things like that. So obviously what this would do is then take a, a whole group of institutional investors and push them out of single family and further into the multifamily space, capitalizing on retail. I know you guys are really focused on retail right now, right. institutional competition in retail and in an office market that's been really sketchy for the last however long, but looks like it could have a little bit of a resurgence here with a lot of that, which a lot with a lot of those buildings coming on the market at, uh, at, at, at high value right now. So what does that look like for you in terms of you looking at your competition Right. As an investor, someone who's raising capital and then having a slew of institutional investors suddenly coming into your market over the next decade. Well, I have always taken the approach on our investment thesis is looking for a moat around what we do. And um, that means simply what is something that we can control, a choke point in our investment thesis that other people maybe have a too high of a barrier of entry to get into. And we are starting to see some trends from Kimco and Blackstone and some other big players, institutions that also own single family homes to start to really look at neighborhood retail. Now, it's been difficult for those institutions to do that at scale because, you know, you're talking about a 30 to 50,000 square foot shopping center. 
you know, displaced all across a, a market. It's very difficult to get that at scale and you have to deal with mom and pop owners. They're looking for scale fast and they want to be able to work with a company that owns uh, $250 million worth of one specific asset class, right? And so they have to look at that and say, look, I mean, you know, to, to go buy a, a new asset class that might, you know, be harder to scale up, that might not be worth their, their time, you know, and, and that's difficult to, to kind of think through. Another asset class that I think could be impacted, you know, greatly here is mobile home parks, right? I mean, you know, that's been, that's been one that has been, you know, applauded as uh, an ability to attack this affordability crisis. And, and so how does that impact mobile home parks and, and the prices there and the rental rates there? So if institutions move out of single family home rentals and they move into either multifamily mobile home parks, um, you know, these, um, you, you know, manufactured homes or, or homes that they can literally, the small homes, you know, whatever it is, that could have a big impact on rental rates in those specific asset classes, increasing those rental rates, which would also you know, be a double-edged sword and in the sense that it's great for the owners potentially, but now renters are, again, stuck in, a, in a, an affordability crisis with that. So I think that the ripple effect would be hard to, to think through, but I definitely, it would definitely impact more, I think, residential type of investments more than uh, maybe the other asset classes. Only for so that that typically those institutions have specific arms that focus on different asset classes already. So if it's something they're already going into, then that fund has been allocated for single family homes. Well, that fund's mandate can't just go invest into neighborhood retail shopping centers. So that may not have the biggest the, the bigger impact there, but you know they may you know be able to send the investors money back from that fund and say this new regulation is really impacting us. To here are two or three other funds that you can get into where we're going to go focus on. So when you look at these bills and instead of looking at it from an investor's perspective, which obviously you do, what's the community impact of something like this? Yeah, I think that there's 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 a case to be had on both sides here, right? So if it's successful, then reduced displacement and gentrification could happen, which would limit investor ownership that could help stabilize neighborhoods and protect residents from displacement. Now, that is going to take um, the ability for certain financing uh, modules to be implemented. Because if someone is not able to you know, qualify for a loan regardless, then they're not going to be able to own these, these homes. And so there may need to be some sort of subsidy in regards to a certain level of uh, single family homes. So that's one thing to think about. Uh, the other is increased community control. So local governments and residents, they may have more say in how housing is developed and, and managed in their neighborhoods. Um, there could be reduced access to rental housing, like we've spoken about before. With fewer investors in the market, you know, rental options may become scarce, making it harder for some individuals to find affordable housing. And frankly, you know, in at least the, the markets that I'm involved in, most people target specific neighborhoods based on the school districts that their children would be going to, right? And so that is a, a big impact here. And I think that this could, you know, this this could, I'm going to say could with a, with a capital C, um, create some market stagnation. You know, a lack of investment could lead to a decline in housing quality and a shortage of new housing options, which, you know, I mean, you look at the transaction volumes from last year to this year and, and what's forecasted going into the next year, you know, this could be a really big impact to just the residential real estate in in, in commercial real estate uh, markets at a whole, right? When you look at the GDP of transaction, what drives those industries? Well, it's transaction volumes because 
once a property is sold, you know, the broker gets paid, there's a new property manager, there's construction going on, a lender has a new loan. Uh, there's all those different ripple effects from when a transaction is consummated to the actual impact that it has from the GDP standpoint for the United States. And I do believe that the United States GDP based on just real estate alone is a, is a very large figure and um, that can have a big impact on the economy as a whole. Logan, when you look at this from a legal and regulatory standpoint, and you think about what it would take to implement something like this, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's complex and, and pretty uncertain. I think it's got some constitutional challenges, and I think it's going to be challenged as a violation of property rights or other constitutional protections. Um, uh, Additionally, I think it might have some implementational hurdles, right? Defining and enforcing that ban could be really difficult, leading to confusion and, again, the potential loopholes that we spoke about. And then we've talked about some unintentional consequences, but I think it could have unintentional consequences such as increased regulation in other areas of the housing markets. And then it has potential for federal preemption. You know, federal law may preempt state and local regulations on housing, making implementation the chan, you know, the ban challenging. I mean, take, for example, um, you know, recreational marijuana, right? I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, at the federal level, um, you know, is is not legal, or maybe it is now, I can't remember. But at certain at one, at one point, it was not legal on the federal level, but at, at the local level and the state level, it was in, in multiple states. So I think that's all, all the things that you need to be thinking about when, when doing this. And then you have to have funding for an organization to, you know, in the government to actually be able to enforce this, right? And so, you know, that, that could be something that uh, the Congress is looking at to say, well, how many jobs does this actually create? You know, because that could be a new, uh, you know, entity and or a new team that has to go implement this um, on an ongoing basis in the United States, which, uh, you know, frankly, I don't know if they have, you know, the capacity to do so. So they probably would have to hire a decent amount of individuals to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't considered the job creation standpoint of creating a new arm that needs to police this and regulate it. Yeah. And, you know, job creation is obviously one thing that m many congressmen and women are, are always focused on. So, I mean, I, the first time that I went to, I believe it was Oregon, uh, Paul, I, I, I'm a Midwestern boy and I, I had a rental car and you know, I could not, uh, maybe it was Washington. It was either Washington or Oregon, um, which, uh, you know, coincidentally, I think the congressmen from both of those states are the ones that are pushing this legislation, but I couldn't pump my own gas. I had no idea. Right. And that was a way that they created jobs was that at gas stations, you know, somebody had to come out and pump your gas. That was a, that was a new one for me. <laughs> yeah. Spent a few years in Jersey and experienced the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. We both mentioned that this is unlikely to pass given the current state of the house. If they don't, that doesn't mean the Congress is going to stop, right? This is obviously something that's on Congress's mind, something that they want to tackle. So what would be the alternatives in your mind that if these bills didn't pass that we might be able to see coming forward? Yeah, I think policymakers can consider alternative measures to address concerns about Wall Street being investment, you know, in the in the housing market. Uh, first one being taxes and fees, you know, imposing higher taxes or fees on investment properties could discourage speculation, encourage long-term ownership for uh, owner users. You know, you have zoning regulations. So zoning regulations could be used to limit the number of investment properties in certain areas. Uh, how about the right of first refusal? Local governments or community land trusts could be given the, the right of first refusal to purchase homes before they're sold to investors. Um, then there's also increased funding for affordable housing. You know, increased government spending on affordable housing programs could help address concerns about housing affordability without restricting private investment. 
I think there's many, uh, you know, examples of when government has restricted private investment and, and gone not so great, right? But there are good examples of when, you know, for example, I think there's a um, there's a certain precious metal that needs to be mined to create chips that we need for all of the different things in the United States. The government's stepping in to help subsidize the ability to mine that uh, special metal or, you know, whatever that's called. I can't remember. Um, it's, it's one of the special metals out there um, to help that industry get started. Right. And so I think that's uh, there is there's been some benefits to that on some examples. But, you know, when you usually, you know, bar out uh, a specific market player and restrict private investment, uh, typically prices go up, not down. So I think that exploring those different perspectives and talking points, you know, um, what we're looking to try to accomplish here is an alternative that's comprehensive and balanced and and have a discussion about this proposed ban on the Wall Street investment on, on single family homes. Because, you know, I've I follow quite a few folks on LinkedIn that have attacked this uh, idea, mostly in the multifamily space. Right. But I think that it does have some you know, issues and it's not a silver bullet solution. I mean, it has a limited scope, right? Again, we've only talked about single family homes. This does not talk about multifamily homes or mobile home parks or anything like that, right? Um, we have to address the demand and supply. You know, why, while the ban might reduce demand from Wall Street investors, it doesn't directly invest, you know, doesn't directly directly to the uh, groups that I represented, right? I mean, there's large groups that are buying 250, 300 homes. And in the Kansas City market, that's a decent amount, right? So it doesn't uh, necessarily address all of those different market players. Um, I think that has maybe some market distortions, right? I mean, by restricting investor participation, the ban could lead to to some distortions, which again, we've talked about impacting liquidity and potentially discouraging other types of investment in the housing market. And so I, I think that what I would like to see is a comprehensive strategy that prioritizes increasing housing supply that I think is essential. And how you do that is by streamlining you know, zoning regulations and permitting processes to facilitate faster and more affordable construction. I've talked to a lot of developers of single family homes and multifamily homes and zoning regulations and the permitting process can take years in specific, you know, specific markets. Uh, we've, we've seen this work really well, but providing incentives for developers to build affordable housing units, such as tax breaks and or density bonuses. Uh, investing in infrastructure and public transportation to make it easier for residents to access jobs and amenities without relying heavily on cars. You know, this is that suburban, which is suburban urban type of development that we're starting to see. Uh, we have some areas like this in Kansas City. It's a live, work, play type of location. I think that's a really interesting way to attack affordable housing. Um, you could promote inclusionary zoning policies that require developers to include a certain percentage of affordable units in new projects. Uh, we've seen that play out here in Kansas City as well on the multifamily home side. And then, you know, again, supporting community land trusts that acquire and manage land for affordable housing purposes, I think is a big opportunity because, you know, everybody hears about the land banks in your cities, but who's actually acquiring, you know, real estate from land banks and how effective has that process been? I, I think that's a really big opportunity for, you know, jurisdictions and local municipalities to really come together and figure out with certain developers on how to use that land that's just sitting vacant and or dilapidated properties to create more affordable uh, housing opportunities for folks. Yeah, it sounds like there's a variety of ways in which this could be tackled without proposing these kinds of bills. And like we said, it's unlikely that these are going to pass. And I think that maybe it's not getting as much attention as it probably should in CRE circles because it's being dismissed because they're unlikely to pass. But what would you tell, 
what advice would you give to investors about about these kinds of topics and about these kinds of issues, given that even though they may not pass, it's still an indication of what's on Congress's mind and might be an indication of the kind of legislation or the kind of things that we could see coming down the pike in the coming years. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to remember that the housing market's complex and there's no single solution to solve all the problems. And I also want to make sure the investors remember that real estate, commercial real estate is hyper local. And it is very important to understand the ins and outs of your local municipality. This is a federal level type of, of legislation, but you know, it's likely to be really battled against, especially in specific states. And so similar to what we have seen with the COVID trends of people moving to specific states, I think that investment dollars could be directed, and let's say this does pass, but it could be directed to certain states that they would feel more safe for their investment dollars to not have to maybe come up against something like that. So I think that is the the biggest thing that investors need to be thinking about is, you know, where are you investing geographically and what is the, you know, what are the ins and outs of the local municipalities that you're investing in at the state level and at the city level. But similar to the 1031 exchange always being, you know, uh, up on the chopping block, I think that, you know, it is a uh, talking point. It is a um, way to grab um, some some high fives and or some some votes in regards to what people are thinking about. But I think the 1031 exchange has been up almost every single uh, election year. Right. And it was just just previously as well. And that got that got shot down really quickly. And why? Well, it, it takes, you know, working across party lines, but it, you also have to think about the implications that something like that and this would have not just on the institutions that you're trying to target, but what about all of the local businesses that serve those institutions that are helping to do the construction or the property management or or the real estate agent or broker that's working on those? That's a huge ripple effect. And I think that if, if uh, you know, maybe KPMNG or, or one of the, the large consulting firms did a study on this, I think that that and the implications of what that would look like for the real estate market as, as a whole and GDP, it'd be really interesting to see that. They've done that on the 1031 exchange side, and that has really you know, silenced a lot of the folks that have tried to bring that to um, you know, the 1031 exchange investors to, to, to really you know, target them, right? All, alongside that, it's what are the unintended consequences that this legislation might have not just on institutional investors? Because the 10, for example, comparing this to the 1031 exchange argument, you know, most 1031 exchange investors do not own massive portfolios and have, you know, huge properties that they are, you know, deferring capital gains tax on. I think that 60 to 70 percent, and it could be higher, are the mom and pop that own a single family home that are trying to sell it because they've gotten too old and they're trying to, you know, you know, give that to an inheritance for for somebody else. And so I think that's uh, something to keep in mind. Um, but look, I mean, people are going to be talking about specific things like this. Um, and technology is also going to be a big play in regards to a lot of different components that Congress has on their, you know, on their, on their agendas here in the near future. Um, I think this is another one that people need to keep in mind. And um, just recently in Kansas City, I saw a local uh, landlords group kind of getting together because they're trying to, you know, combat some new bills that are coming up that's going to make it easier for, you know, um, unfortunately, felons to be able to rent, uh, you know, a, a house and you can't, you know, not rent to somebody who has a, a violent crime, you know, it's stuff, stuff like that, that is going to potentially trickle down. And even if they don't get it at the federal level, they very well might get it at some state levels and some local levels that you need to keep in mind. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a lot of thoughts on this and that you've put a lot of thought into this. Logan, I really appreciate you joining me today. Is there anything that we didn't discuss 
that you think we should touch on? No, I, I just think focusing on those strategies, you know, alongside exploring various regulatory approaches like the proposed ban that we've talked about, uh, we can develop a more effective and multi-pronged approach to addressing the affordability crisis and ensuring that housing is all accessible to to all. But um, you know, it's a it's a fun thought experiment. It's really interesting that this is on people's minds and, and in Congress, and uh, I'm interested to see what the pushback and/or adoption might be here going forward. Yeah, I am as well. Thank you once again, Logan, for joining me today. I really appreciate all the perspective you're able to provide. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thank you, Logan. And thank you, best ever listeners. If you want to read more about these bills, click the links in the show notes. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review, share it with someone you think could find some value in it, and also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access. And you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.